Listener Production. People living in their cars, families crammed into a single bedrooms, other missing out on properties so many times, they're now advertising for places to live on Gumtree. This is the pointy end of Australia's rental crisis. And some people who never thought they'd be homeless are really struggling to get a roof over their heads. Me and my partner and four kids are currently living in a five-seater car. We have been looking for a house since a week before Christmas. It is really hard to find a rental or even get into social housing. Times are really hard and it's really, really tiring. Rents have gone up 16% in some cities in the last year and couple that with lowest housing vacancy rates. In almost 20 years, it's pretty bad and could get even worse. In today's briefing, we're going to look into how the rental crisis got to this point and what commitments the major parties have made to fix it in the lead up to the election. It is Wednesday, May the 11th. I'm Antoinette Latouf. I'm very lucky today to be joined by Natasha Belling. Antoinette, happy Wednesday. How are you? Ah, feeling good. Very (laughs) excited to be working with you. Well, small businesses are warning that they cannot afford a wage increase in line with inflation. Instead, the Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry has backed a 3% pay increase but that's lower than the 5.1% minimum wage backed by Labor leader Anthony Albanese. The last increase that the Fair Work Commission made was 2.5%, even though inflation was just 1.1%. So we know that the Fair Work Commission has taken these issues into account. We've clearly said uh, that people should not fall further behind. If Anthony Albanese gets his way, the minimum wage would increase to $21.45 an hour, while Scott Morrison says any increase needs to be in line with the Fair Work Commission. That that be independently assessed in a a proper process based on all the best facts and information about the economy. And uh, and we have always welcomed and accepted uh, the recommendations that have come from that body. So Scott Morrison suggested Australian workers won't see a real wage increase for another 18 months. And Tash, we've just heard about the rental crisis. We know that, you know, cost of living is a real problem. People need higher wages. Like, they need to earn more. And I understand it's a balancing act between managing inflation, but there are other things the government can do to manage inflation. Well, we spoke with Effie Zahos this morning on Morning Agenda, and Effie made a great point. She's actually found new data showing that Australians are doing it so tough at the moment. Not only are they working full-time in one job, they're actually having to get a second or a third job to try and make ends meet right now. And that's with interest rates at you know, record levels. What I find is really, really difficult is everyone was really shocked by Anthony Albanese coming out and promising that because the devil in the detail there is Mm. if you actually increase wages and do it um, irresponsibly is that puts further pressure on inflation, Mm -hmm. which then increases the cost of living, but also then puts more pressure on the Reserve Bank to increase interest rates again as monetary policy to stop inflation spiralling out of control. So, of course, people need a wage increase, but it needs to be done responsibly. And the first thing small businesses would say out there, they can't make ends meet right now. They don't have staff. They've Mm. got a huge issue with staffing levels. And how do they find the money to then give their employees a much-needed wage increase. I'm no economist at all of those points. <laughs> all of those points you make are really valid. There are other things that can be done, like hiring the rate of income tax um, for higher income earners, reducing mm. spending, a combination of monetary and fiscal policy, and this is very much taking me back to high school economics. <laughs> but there, there's a range of things that can be done to counterbalance. And I, I mean, I'm not suggesting I have the solution, 
but I'm, I'm just not sure that people living on couches and unable to pay oh. for their grocery bills, I'm just not sure that that situation's okay. And also in regional Australia, the real estate prices, which have been great for many people that are lucky enough to own their home in regional areas, because we've seen a tourism boom, a lot of people have actually used rental properties as Airbnbs. Mm. So then that's pushed out thousands of people into a real homelessness crisis in many regional and rural areas. And we're going to address all of that in the rental crisis in today's briefing. New polling has Treasurer Josh Frydenberg in big trouble. News Corp's YouGov research is the Treasurer losing the Victorian seat of Kuyong. Frydenberg's primary vote is down at 38% compared to Teal candidate Monique Ryan, whose primary is at 28%, although preferences would give her the win 53 to 47%. And it's not looking good for the coalition in Goldstein either. Tim Wilson also forecast for a loss, but the New South Wales Liberals seem to be better at defending against the Tills with Trent Zimmerman in North Sydney, Dave Sharma in Wentworth and Jason Falinski in McKellar, all safe according to the poll. After preferences, YouGov is calling it for the opposition with a 53 to 47% advantage. And Tash, we've, we've learned and been told time and time again that we should not necessarily trust the polls. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> How often have we known that beforehand? And look, I actually, I've been contacted three times via phone to give my thoughts on who I'm going to vote for in the upcoming election. I have a growing feeling that a number of people don't tell the truth on who they're actually going to vote for. But I do think there is growing sentiment out in the community. It's the lesser of two evils. People seem incredibly disillusioned right now that they don't feel inspired to vote for other, you know, I know it's not a presidential election, Mm. but they do look to Mr Albanese or Mr Morrison saying it's the lesser of the two evils. They haven't got great policies on issues that people care about, childcare crisis Mm. and age care crisis, and they feel the local candidates, especially the independents, may offer a much-needed alternative. The Queen has missed the opening of the British Parliament for just the third time in her 70-year reign. I mean, what a work ethic. Get this, the only other two times were due to pregnancy. So Prince Charles was filling in. In this year of the Platinum Jubilee, Her Majesty looks forward to the celebrations taking place across the United Kingdom and throughout the Commonwealth. The 96-year-old couldn't attend because of ongoing mobility and health issues. The palace declined to give exact details, but apparently it was related to the issues Her Majesty had suffered last year. The decision was only made on Monday local time. And many have been waiting and many also predicted it. Elon Musk says he would let Donald Trump come back to Twitter. Musk saying he will reverse the platform's permanent ban on the former president if he follows through with his plan to buy the social media company. Musk says Twitter's Trump ban was a morally bad decision and foolish in the extreme. He said permanent bans of Twitter accounts should be rare and reserved for accounts that are scams or automated bots. Twitter banned Mr Trump's account in January 2021 for incitement of violence following the January 6 insurrection at the US Capitol. Didn't he promise that he wasn't going to let Mr Trump back on? I'm pretty sure he left the door open, but I would argue that what Trump did and the risk he posed um, is far worse than an automated bot. Indeed, that is an excellent point. Mr Trump is more dangerous than than a bot. I agree, Antoinette, well said. Coming up, Tom and Katrina take a look at the rental crisis gripping Australia. So, Katrina, when you look at rental prices over the last 12 months, it's 
pretty scary in some parts of the country. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, In Brizzy, where I live, house rentals are up 15% just over the last year. In Canberra, 16%. Mm. Perth is pretty high too, 11%. Uh, Sydney and Adelaide up 9% in one year. Yeah, so in this discussion, we're going to find out what's happening. Are we at the start of a massive crisis or is this just a COVID bounce back in some cities? And how are these rising rental prices impacting people's lives? We did a call out to you guys on our Instagram about rental stress and here are a few of the stories we got back. First up, Jack from Sydney. Two days ago, I received an email from the real estate agent notifying me that the rent would increase from 450 per week to 550 per week. The unit already has a leaking roof the landlord won't even fix. Oh my God, some landlords and their agents are absolutely outrageous. So he's looking at a 20% rental increase in one go there for a property that's got a leaking roof. That's a shocker. Here's another story we got from Rich in Melbourne. We're a family of four with two full-time incomes, which used to give us a bit of an advantage. In all honesty, though, that's no longer the case. Um, Housing in Melbourne suburbs where we are are now $300 per bedroom per house. And to be honest, we're struggling on our dual income. I'm not not really sure how single-parent families are even coping any longer. Yeah, you can hear that in his voice, the stress of that situation. And that gives you a bit of a sense of how much impact rental pressures are putting on people's lives. And this is coming as people battle other cost of living pressures like petrol, food prices. So it really is starting to get ugly for many Australians. To explain how we've got to this point, where it's going from here, and to critique what the major parties are promising for renters... We're joined by Professor Wendy Stone from the Housing Futures Research Program at Swinburne Research Centre. What do you think is happening in the rental market? How worried are you about some of the big increases we've seen in the last 12 months? The rental market is in um, a complete crisis situation in Australia. We thought for a long time in Australia that with the World War II sort of housing policies that were in place, which really favoured home ownership, all of us very much buying into that Australian dream of ownership. Really, rental was seen, as we know, as a transitional sector that people would come into for a little while and then move out of. But as we know, since deregulation in the 80s and 90s, more and more people are living in private rental in particular for longer. It's really about time that we were doing some catch-up in terms of our policy thinking about making the rental sector here a very good one. Mm. Uh, But there's still so much to do to make sure that living in the private rental sector actually sets people up well in their homes so that they can really participate in a meaningful, healthy, dignified way in our society. We should talk about the regional market and um, some of those regional areas that have really gone gangbusters in the last couple of years, Uh, central western New South Wales being one area, New South Wales north coast. But then there are areas like north Queensland, not so much. What have you seen when you look at those overall trends in the regions? The regional housing market is of extreme concern right now. We know, obviously, all of us um, watching or, or for people experiencing those areas from that have been uh, have taken a hit to their housing stock through bushfires and floods. So there's a real crisis already. Um, we've also seen there people coming into those regional areas where work from home became possible, or people may have lost their jobs and moved to what they thought was a more more affordable market or or more affordable location. The pressures now mean that 
there's kind of nowhere else to move. So some places, as you've identified, are absolutely uh, flooded with new people and a, a vacancy rate that's virtually zero. It's not only those pressures. We can think too about some of the other ways that residential housing stock is being used. So we know that the short lets market is having a major impact in removing housing stock from the residential housing sector. Where people let out a house as a full dwelling, that house is effectively another house that's taken out of the housing stock. So that smaller towns, regional areas where people may be heavily geared, may have bought into investment properties, may have holiday homes they can't quite afford, or trying to benefit from the taxation settings, are removing um, housing from the housing system in ways too that we don't really regulate very well in Australia at this point. As you've said, um, housing is a basic human need, like we all need a roof over our heads. So what impact does a tough rental market actually have on people's lives and, you know, the flow on from that on our society? The immediate impact of a, a lack of secure, affordable, safe housing that's adequate for people is absolutely excruciating and devastating even before the intensity of the pandemic in interviews with people around their housing aspirations. Um, in our research, we heard stories, harrowing stories, for example, of people begging, literally begging in their own regional communities, begging short let owners to let them live in those houses. And we, I remember um, speaking with with a mother of uh, three or four children who had literally begged everyone in, in her community um, for housing and did not want to do that. That's not something anyone should have to do. But she was eventually offered nine-month lease and would have to vacate over the summer peak period. Th those situations don't enable those children, for example, to remain secure at school, to feel that they are safe and connected with community. The flow-on effects for mental health, physical health, the stresses of violence that we've heard of mm. in the pandemic that have intensified, we're really setting up people for failure at a very basic level, which is a fundamental breach of human rights in this country. Mm. We absolutely know that where people can't engage in society and in the economy well, we're going to have flow and effects for housing assistance, homelessness services, justice, and overall our society would just be a far less positive, productive and, and wonderful place in which to live. So in terms of analysing, you know, what the major parties are proposing to do as, as we head towards this federal election, the coalition are offering $2 billion for low-cost loans to community housing providers. Labor's affordable housing plan involves $10 billion to build 30,000 new homes. What do you make of each of the major parties' uh, proposals and do you think it'll make a dent? The positive thing is that we are seeing housing recognised uh, within the election campaign period by both major parties as well as the Greens and others um, such as the Teal Independents. This is very welcome. The elephant in the room that we're not hearing anything about the taxation settings and other incentives that act to financialise the housing system in ways that we know are damaging for basic human housing and meeting our basic needs for shelter. While many people in our society have done very well through a market-led period in, in which rental investment has intensified, many people haven't done well. What we actually need 
is a commitment, a genuine commitment as an absolute priority that we will have a national affordable housing strategy. We know from recent research from Anglicare, from others, that what is required is at least 430, 440,000 new social and affordable housing dwellings. We need that now. We don't only need 10,000, we need up around the 500,000 mark if we're thinking in a future um, sense. So this is a major challenge. It's also an absolute opportunity. What we need though is to start to rethink the way that we're doing things. We know that the current structuring and regulation doesn't work. It doesn't work to de-risk investment for small-scale investor landlords, and nor does it provide housing in a full way that we need. What we would really need to see to start to get some innovation in the market and in the system is not only having that mature conversation about revisiting capital gains tax exemptions and negative gearing, but also a raft of new style partnerships which see the government step in with not-for-profits into the space that currently the market is really occupying. We know that the market alone will not provide the kind of infrastructure or care that we need as a society within the housing system. The announcements from the main parties at the moment through the election are welcome, but they're very small scale. It is a real opportunity to have the conversation around shared equity and other rent to buy schemes, because these are the kinds of pathways that people are identifying in our research that they are looking for. People do want a pathway to secure ownership if possible. That's still uh, very dominant in the Australian psyche. Right, because that's ScoMo's sort of seems to be his main response is just helping people to buy their own home rather than really focusing on the needs of renters before they get to that point. Yeah, that's right. And this is where we, we get into real strife, where we have a sprinkling of announcements, but not a coherent national policy. Focusing on um, helping some people into home ownership is possibly a good thing, but where that's not accompanied by support within the rental system or major support for Mm. social and affordable housing alone, that really doesn't do much around our current housing problems. That was Professor Wendy Stone from Swinburne Uni. And Tom, this is something that can't be fixed in a quick policy fix Mm. or just by chucking money at it because, as Professor Stone was saying, these are policies that have really been bubbling along since and taking shape since World War II. And it it prompts not just a rethink in policymaking, but also in the way that we're brought up. I know that my parents always kind of instilled in me that home ownership was a thing that I needed to aspire to. And I think that's quite unique in Australian culture. I know friends of mine who live in Europe or even the US, that was never a thing for them. It was never this expectation yeah. that they would one day save up and own their own home. Yeah, I lived in the Netherlands and you could get a rental for life there at a fixed predictable price. And so all the people I was kicking around with, they weren't thinking about taking on these huge mortgages and, you know, loading themselves up with debt for decades on end. They were thinking about their studies, traveling, all these other things. So it is a different mentality. And yeah, as you say, that this has gone back decades. So after World War II, home ownership was at around... 50% and very quickly after a change in policy from the Menzies government, it's gone up to around 70%, which is where it's stayed since. And it just seems our leaders put so much faith in that private market and that model of 
renting to buy, but it's just entrenching disadvantage. A lot of people are saying we need to, you know, sure, help people get into the housing market to own, but help renters at the same time. Thanks so much for that, guys. On tomorrow's briefing, the court case the whole world is watching, Amber Heard versus Johnny Depp. Listener.